0: Hello and welcome to the British Politicast. I'm Joel Suss, editor of the LSE's British Politics and Policy blog. BPP publishes daily posts by leading academics on developments across UK government, politics and policy. I recently sat down to talk with John Hills about his new book, Good Times, Bad Times, The Welfare Myth of Them and Us. John is Professor of Social Policy at the LSE and Director of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion. I began by asking him to explain what he means by the welfare myth and where it comes from.
1: For a lot of people, and this isn't just politicians of the right, but I think often it's, it's accepted by politicians on the left as well, we talk about welfare as if it was a handout to a completely different group of people, um, to them, who never work are always on benefits coming from us who pay our taxes, never get anything out of the welfare state. And a lot of things follow from that in terms of if a lot of money is being spent on those people, then clearly the solution to the problem is for them to get off, up, off their backsides and for us to cajole or, or force them somehow or other into work, and that will save the rest of us a lot of money. But when you put that in the context of the research and what we know about the way the UK welfare state works, it's not like that. Our lives are changing the whole time. People move in and out of work. At one time in our lives we are paying in, at other times we're getting out. And the bulk of the money isn't spent on cash handouts for people who are out of work. It's spent on pensions, on health care and on schools, things that nearly every family benefits from. So that idea that it's just a small minority who have nothing to do with the rest of us who are benefiting from the system, is not at all an accurate representation of what's really going on. This is you know, emphasized the whole time through the rhetoric of scroungers, and the, the contrast between skyvers and strivers. Current government ministers have talked about um, the difference between alarm clock Britain and the people who've still got the curtains drawn at 12 o'clock. So when we start talking about these big issues, I think people have in their head an idea that the money is going to this small minority who are permanently out of work. Well, first of all, of every £12.50 that are spent on the UK welfare state, only one pound is spent on cash benefits that go to all of the people of working age who are out of work, Um, whether they're long-term sick and disabled, uh, whether they're lone parents with young children, or whether they're unemployed and and looking for work. Most of the money is going somewhere else. And as well as that, we get a lot of turnover. So, for instance, um, if you look at people going on to the main unemployment benefit in the UK, Job Seekers Allowance, more than half of those people will stay on JobSeeker's Alliance for no more than two months. So there's a lot of churn, there's a lot of movement on and off. Now, so when people are thinking about where we should spend the money, they tend to think about what they see as being legitimate needs, the health service, pensions when people are elderly, benefits for people who've lost their job through no fault of their own because the factory's closed down and so on. And they support that. And that's where most of the money goes. And that's why the system has this effect of being redistributive to quite a large extent at one moment in time in any one year, still being redistributive to some extent over the life cycle, but actually in a context where most people get quite a considerable amount out of it. And that's a rather different picture from the one that people sometimes have in their head and the one that's some, the picture that's often fed by some of the tabloid newspapers and some, some politicians, um, that, that that's not what's going on. So the, I think the disjuncture is between people's idea of how the system ought to work, which by and large it actually does, which they support, and the picture which is presented to them of most of the money going on scroungers, which they don't
0: support. A lot of people also argue the you know, um, the welfare state has become too large, we're paying too much money, and, and the poor have become too expensive. What's What's wrong with that argument? I heard, I was
1: in a, a rather grand conference shortly after the 2010 election, and was talking about the effects of some of the cuts that were coming, um, as just been announced in the emergency budget in in June 2010. And um, one of the people there um, was listening to what I was saying and nodded his head, but said, but the trouble is the poor got too expensive. And I think that's quite a common perception, that what happened under the last Labour government was there was a huge increase in spending on on handouts to to the unemployed, um, and that was where all the money had gone, and that that was the explanation of why people on middle incomes are being squeezed, that we're spending all this money. Now, actually, if you look at the record of the last Labour government, that's not where they spent the money. Um, They did increase spending on pensions as a share of national income, they did increase spending cash transfers to um, children, uh, families with children, uh, and that went up as a share of national income as well. But they cut the amount of money that was going to working-age people without children. Um, so they boosted the effect to what the, wealth, the UK welfare state does, is to redistribute from from the times in our lives when we've got more income, working age, to, to people with children, when they're bringing up children, and, and to pensioners, to this sort of life cycle smoothing thing. Um, so it's not true that that's where the money goes. Now, I think if you look at in detail at the income distribution figures and you look back at what's happened over the last, not just the last five years or the last 20 years, but the last 30 years, is it is true that the share of income, of all personal income, that's going to people in the middle has gone down. That's not because the share going to people at the bottom has gone up. What's happened is, is the share going to the very top, has increased. So a different way of formulating that is it's not that the poor got too expensive, it's that overall the rich got too expensive, and that's one of the things that's driving the fact that the middle feels squeezed.
0: You devote an entire chapter in your book to wealth inequality. What does the picture look like for the UK, and what are the implications for social mobility? There's been a very
1: big change in the role wealth plays in UK social life. A lot of it driven by the fact that house prices more than doubled in real terms in the last um, 15, 20 years. There's a generation who, on average, have not just much greater wealth in cash terms than, if you add it all together, their pension rights, their houses and so on, than any previous generation has had. But actually, more wealth than a typical person in their late 20s or late 30s could possibly look forward to, even if they saved half of their money from now on. Now, that's become a very, um, I think that's attracted a lot of attention. But I think one has to be a little bit more nuanced about this. The wealth inequalities within the baby boomers are even greater than the wealth inequalities between the baby boomers and the jilted generation. Not just that, that wealth will not disappear. Parents are going to fight very hard to make sure their children don't fall down if they know it's a long way down. Um, and that's why you get this thing that's been referred to in the U.S. as the Great Gatsby Curve, the link between unequal societies and low rates of social mobility. And as Piketty has pointed out, those numbers are now bigger than they used to be. It takes many more years of savings and income to climb the ladder through your own efforts than it did in the past. And that makes inheritance and help from
0: older members of your family much more important than it used to be. In the UK today, how does being born to a working-class family versus a middle-class family affect your life chances?
1: On average, um, it is true that people who start from a disadvantaged background have lower chances than people starting from a higher background. But it's very important in all of this to remember these are just chances. That it may be that the latest research suggests that for people born in 1970, about half of their earnings, if you allow for unemployment and things like that, getting on for half of their earnings might be explained by whether their their fathers were high or low earners when they were children. But remember that the other half isn't. Re- remember that the average number of GCSEs that 16-year-old children are getting, depending on whether they have free school meals um, or not, will differ. But a good proportion of people from the most disadvantaged areas do better than half of the than the the, the bottom 30% of children coming from affluent areas. So we're not talking here about predestination. We're not talking about a world where, a rigid world, where things are fixed at birth. Yes, people's chances are worse if they start from a worse background. Uh, So it's not a lottery where everything's flung up in the air every year. But it does change. And again, that emphasizes the whole message of the book that you've got to allow for that movement from year to year. Even people who start poor in one year, they won't necessarily be poor in one year. Most people do move out of poverty after a year or two. Most people who lose their jobs do go back into to work quite quickly. Um, so it's a much more complex picture. It's a much harder picture for policymakers to conceptualize,
0: but it's the reality we're dealing with. In Chapter 8, you discussed the difference in impact between the government reducing its deficit through spending cuts or through tax rises. So what lessons would you, uh, would you have for the coalition government or for future governments on this? Any future government
1: continuing to grapple with the UK's deficit, depending on what the macroeconomists say they ought to be doing, but that's outside my brief, may be facing the situation where certainly there isn't a lot of money around um, and probably for a number of years to come the, the budget deficit has to be closed. And there are essentially two ways of doing that. It can be done by increasing taxes, and probably not just one tax, but the whole lo- lo- lot of taxes across across the board, um, or by spending cuts. There is always a hope that you can somehow focus your spending cuts on people who are already okay. But the lesson that comes from, from that is to say, well, in, in that case, we need to means test things, that your entitlements whatever it is should be on a means-tested basis. The trouble with that is that we already have a heavily means-tested system. And there's not much room to add further to the effective tax rates people have, both through income tax, through national insurance, through withdrawal of their tax credits, through withdrawal of their housing benefit, and so on. We're already charging very high rates of effective tax for people on low and, and um, modest incomes. So there's not much room to do more of that. Um, if you contrast... Raising all taxes with cutting everything, it's quite clear that raising taxes takes pretty well the same share of income, up and down the income distribution from rich and poor, whereas cutting everything will bear more heavily on people who currently have lower incomes.
0: What's your book's overall message? What kind of impact do you want it to have? Politicians sometimes slip
1: from talking about the very large costs of the welfare state as a whole... And then start focusing on the most undesirable, undeserving poor as being, as talking as if where that's the money going. And I think if you have relentless discussion of that for year after year, that is how people see it. It may not be what they see in their own lives. They may know that their children lose jobs, find it difficult to get into work, have temporary work, go back in and out of work. They may know that they themselves and their parents use health care, use social care. But there's a sort of cognitive dissonance between that understanding of our own lives, that they're very dynamic and very fluid, and the picture we're presented with as if it was typical. And politicians on both left and right tend to subscribe to that. Because if that's, it, that's what the voters believe, they will reflect that back to them. And if the politicians are reflecting it back to them... That reinforces the belief. Every time you see a, an advertisement on a bus stop saying benefit fraud says we're closing in on you, that gives you the impression there must be an awful lot of benefit fraud around, otherwise, they wouldn't be doing that. And if the people believe there's a lot of benefit fraud around, then obviously the solution is that politicians respond by saying we must get tougher on that. If you believe in this static, arid, world of unchanging lives. You believe that there are lots of families around where three generations have never worked. Now, some researchers um, up in the north of England went looking in, they spent eight months looking in some of the highest unemployment parts of Middlesbrough and Glasgow, unemployment black spots. Um, They could not find these three-generation families who've never worked. Um, Even in those places, and they describe what they've done as hunting the Yeti, that people believed it was there, but they couldn't find evidence. Now, I'm sure there are some cases, and in reaction to this book, I'm sure somebody will come up with some cases. My point is not that they don't exist in the same way that there aren't people um, who are defrauding the system. But they're not typical of the people who go on to Job Seeker's Allowance for a short time. They're not typical for the people who are desperately seeking work. They're not typical of the people who use the health care system when their children are born, when they're ill themselves, and when, when they're older. But we've, we're presented with this atypical picture the whole time. And if this book succeeds in correcting that picture and bringing people's view of what's going on, closer to what the evidence suggests is reality then maybe that will contribute to people framing the
0: political debate in a different way in the future. That was Professor John Hills talking about his new book Good Times, Bad Times, The Welfare Myth of Them and Us. That's all for this episode. Join us next time when we explore issues around immigration in the UK. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley. Thanks to DJ Harrison at the Free Music Archive for his song City Swagger. And don't forget, you can visit our site at blogs.lsc.ac.uk slash politics and policy. I'm Joel Suss, and thanks for listening.